The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Thank you for, uh, for being here with us this morning. It's, it's great to have you. My, uh, my personal evangelism professor in seminary told a story, a true story, of a businessman, a Christian businessman out in the Northwest, a very committed Christian who was determined to live his life for Christ, to live with integrity and passion, but yet he never spoke of his faith in Christ. And he tells a story that one day he received a phone call from a friend of his that he had worked with for years, and the friend was all excited. He said, I've got to tell you something. He said, last night, I heard a man preach called Billy Graham. And he said, I gave my life to Christ. He said, I'm a Christian. I'm a changed man. And the businessman said, this is incredible news. I'm a Christian too. I've wanted this for you for so long. And the guy paused, and he said, well, I need to tell you something. He said, One of the reasons that kept me from Jesus for so long was I would look at your life and see if this guy could live that good of a life without Jesus, then I don't need, surely I don't need Jesus. So the impact that this businessman was hoping to have living a life faithful to Christ, void of speaking the gospel of Christ, actually had the exact opposite impact than what he was hoping. Now, why do I share this story? Well, as I said, we're going through this heart of making disciples, and we want to focus this morning on the fact that as disciple makers, we are given a specific message to share And it's through this specific message that God saves sinners. This is how he has designed it to be. Now, we've all heard the phrase, maybe sometimes use the phrase, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I have been guilty of saying that before. All right. Now, is it important that our lives line up with the gospel? Yes. But we must know that our lives are not the gospel. The gospel is a specific message that needs to be proclaimed. This is why for our scripture reading today, we read from Romans 10. A disciple is made, or to use the definitions that we've been using as we've been going along, someone moves from unbelief to belief in Jesus as they hear and respond to the good news of the gospel. And Paul's logic in Romans 10 that we just read is very clear. For someone to genuinely call on Jesus for salvation, they must first believe in him. But how can someone believe in him if they haven't first heard about him? And how will they hear about him if someone doesn't tell them about him? And you'll notice there in verse 15, he calls this message about Jesus the good news. And this is what we want to focus on today. This good news that we have been sent to preach so that unbelievers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can hear, believe, and call on Jesus alone for salvation. 
And we need to have a clear understanding of the message that we've been sent to proclaim. So our sermon title today is simply this, What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? Now, no doubt, if you pull a bunch of random churchgoers from all over the country and ask them what is the Gospel, you're going to get a wide range of definitions. But friends, we are not free to proclaim whatever we want to proclaim. We are not free to believe whatever we want to believe in order to be saved. We must proclaim and believe what the Bible says to proclaim and believe. Now, you need to know we are not going to say all that can be said about the gospel today. We're certainly not going to look at all the texts that we can look at in regards to the gospel I love the fact that trying to find texts that speak to the gospel is not like trying to find a needle in the haystack in the Bible. It is full all throughout the pages of Scripture. So we're not going to say all that can be said today, but by God's grace, what we're going to do is look at the basic message of the gospel. What are the need-to-knows, so to speak? And I think as you study the many passages throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, you will see four truths being proclaimed in multiple different ways, in different times, in different places, over and over and over again. Truths about God, truths about man, truths about Christ, and the necessity of a response to the news of the gospel. So first, we're going to see the gospel is a message about God. The gospel is a message about God. Go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. Should be, I think, page 1 for you. We're going to be there in uh, verses 26 and 27 just for a few minutes. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 and 27. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, it's probably no surprise to you, we live in an age where we cannot assume that everyone we meet has some basic biblical understanding of who God is. Matter of fact, the day and age which we live, it's probably safest to assume they don't have a basic biblical understanding of God until, they, until we learn otherwise. And even though even then, even though they may know things that are true about God, doesn't mean that they believe those things. So we must start where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. So the gospel is a message first and foremost about God, and it tells us that God is creator. God is creator. On the sixth day of creation, we read here, God does something that he hasn't done in the previous five days. He makes something in his own image. Man and woman, unlike any other part of God's creation, 
Humanity is the pinnacle of his creation, and he created humanity for a purpose. We were made in his image. We're made to bear his image in our lives. This means we were created to reflect God in our lives. And we see this in the fact that God, as the creator and ruler, then tells Adam and Eve to rule over and have dominion over his creation and everything on the earth. Now, again, this is something that we could talk about a lot. We know in other places of the Bible we are created to love God with all of our hearts, to worship him continuously. So what does this have to do with us and the gospel? Well, since we, all of us were created and created for a purpose, this means we are not our own. Rather, what this means is we are owned by God. We were created. We are not the creator. Those of you who are Albert Muller fans will understand that enunciation, creator. little inside joke there. <clears throat> so we are not free to live our lives as we want to. Because God created us, he has the right to tell us how to live. So as we communicate the gospel, we strive to communicate that every single one of us has a responsibility before our maker. We're responsible for how we live, for how we talk, for how we act, for how we think, even for the things that we desire. Now, hopefully, we, we should feel the weight of this, right? The thought should begin to settle in our hearts, the thought of having to give an account of everything about ourselves before God. Now, why should we feel the weight of that about that? Well, that's because the Bible also tells us about what God is like. And that is the fact that God is holy. God is holy. Again, there are numerous passages that we can turn to to demonstrate this. Perhaps one of the most famous verses found in Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God where the angels are continually singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And when the Bible speaks of God being holy, it's conveying the idea that God is unique. He is set apart from all of creation. He is without sin, perfectly righteous. There is no one like him. He's absolutely perfect in every way. And therefore, sin cannot dwell in his presence. His holiness demands that sin be punished. God himself makes this clear. Go with me to Exodus 34, which will be on page 69. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And as you're turning there, just a few verses prior to this, Moses has made the incredible request for God to show him his glory. And then we come to these verses in Exodus 34, incredible verses. Let's just start in verse 5 there, 34, verse 5. 
The Lord descended in the cloud. Think about this. Think about experiencing this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Man, how incredible is this? We have God himself revealing to us what he is like. What an amazing experience this must have been for our brother Moses. And isn't it cool? The first two words God uses to describe himself are merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. Now, this is something we can all get on board with, right? We'll take a God who's merciful, gracious, who's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But notice that's not all that God says about himself. In verse 7, he says, He will by no means clear the guilty. A just, holy, righteous God cannot and should not turn a blind eye to sin. We understand this, right? No one wants a human judge to turn a blind eye to a convicted criminal. We want justice to be done. So sin must be paid. The penalty for sin must be paid. So then how are we supposed to understand verse 7, right? How can it simultaneously be true that God forgives iniquity and sin and yet not clear the guilty? Well, that is an excellent question. One that has a glorious answer that we will get to in just a few minutes, okay? But this is a crucial point that we cannot miss when sharing the gospel. Yes, God is a God of love and kindness, but, says one pastor, God's love does not cancel out his justice and righteousness. He is also a holy God who will not turn a blind eye to sin. All sin will be dealt with, including our own. We must understand this because when we begin to see God more accurately, we can begin to see ourselves more accurately. And this brings us to the reality that the gospel is a message about us. The gospel is a message about us. You guys are doing well. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going next. Thank you for sticking with me here. Ephesians chapter 2 is going to be on page 917. And as we turn to the book of Ephesians there, Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus. And he's describing who they were before Jesus saved them. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead. 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if you want to know the true state of every human being, look no further than these verses right here. Friends, we we need to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here. Right? This is graphic imagery. Due to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman that God created, due to their rebellion against God, all humanity fell into sin. Let's make it more personal. Because of Adam and Eve, every single one of us is born dead on arrival, spiritually speaking. We're born dead on arrival. Our default position is not one of spiritual neutrality. Look at it this way. We're kind of all walking zombies when we show up here on earth. We are dead people walking. How do we know this? Paul says it's evidenced by how we live and who we follow. Now, this is important to notice because we are we're sinners, or excuse me, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our very nature is corrupt and fallen. Therefore, sin comes out of our fallen nature. Now, hopefully you're noticing already the stark contrast between what we were created to be, right, and how we actually are, as described by the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 2. Instead of God ruling our hearts and using our lives for his glory, sin rules our hearts, and we live our lives according to our own passions and pleasures. Paul said, instead of carrying out the desires of our Creator, We are busy carrying out the desires of the creature. We do what we want to do. Instead of submitting to God, we play God of our own lives. And it gets even worse. Paul says we're actually following Satan. That is the prince of the power of the air that he is talking about there. Now what happens is when we're exposed to this kind of truth... What the flesh loves to do in that moment is begin to compare ourselves to other people that we know, right? But Paul reminds us elsewhere in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one righteous. Not even one. See, God does not judge us based on how we compare to others. He judges us based on how we compare to His perfect and righteous standard. We must understand this. And compared to his perfect and righteous standard, we all fall short. We all fall short. So, in other words, we are included in the guilty from Exodus 34 that we just read. That includes every single one of us when we arrive here On earth. Thus, we are by nature, as Paul says in verse 3, children of wrath. Our sinful rebellion rightly provokes the just wrath of God. 
And ultimately, this wrath will be displayed in hell. Eternal separation from God. So what does the gospel message say about us? It says that we are dead in our sins and under the wrath of God. That's what the gospel says about us. So the question is, how can someone who is dead in their sins under the wrath of God ever know the forgiveness that God just talked about that we looked at there in Exodus 34? How can an unrighteous, sin-enslaved, devil-following person ever be close to a holy God? How is it possible? Because in these verses, Paul is not describing someone who can earn their way into heaven. Paul is describing someone who is in a spiritual graveyard, unable to do anything pleasing to God, and they are in need of divine intervention. And praise be to God, he did intervene in our situation. God did intervene on behalf of sinful humanity because we also know that the gospel is a message about Jesus. The gospel is a message about Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18. We're getting close. You guys are doing good. Hang in there. 1 Peter 3.18. There is hope for the unrighteous because the righteous one, Jesus Christ, came to the rescue. And as you're turning there, Peter, he's writing to believers who are experiencing tremendous suffering, and he wants them to know that they are not alone. They can have hope. They can endure in their suffering, for someone else has experienced unjust suffering on their behalf. Look at verse 18 with me, 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Friends, what a precious verse this is. What a precious verse this is. Because of verses like this, we know sin does not have to have the last word in our lives. Sin does not have the last word. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, man or woman needs someone other than themselves to bring them back to God, and that someone is the God-man, Jesus Christ. In order for sinners to be made right with a holy God, the penalty for sin has to be paid, and the penalty was paid by the one, Peter says, who suffered once for sins. See, the wrath that we just read about in Ephesians 2, this wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. This is what it means when the Bible says in the book of Romans that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That means a wrath-absorbing substitute. A wrath-absorbing substitute. And his death on the cross was effective for sinners because Jesus was not just another sinner dying on the cross. He suffered once for sins because Jesus is not just another Old Testament human prophet making sacrifices or a human priest making sacrifices 
for sins. The unrighteous can know freedom from sin because the righteous one died in their place. What a beautiful phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus is perfectly righteous. He is without sin because he is God in the flesh. During his life on earth, he lived in perfect obedience to the Father. See, the life Jesus lived is just as important as his death and resurrection because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He lived the life that we were created to live but couldn't because of our sin. So his life is unlike any other life in human history, without sin, perfect obedience to God, and his death was unlike any other death in human history because he did not die for his own sin. He willingly laid down his life for sinners, for those who would trust in him. For our sake, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, meaning Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Love what one pastor said. He said, this can be illustrated by a simple pencil. The eraser is the blood of Christ, cleansing us from all sin. The lead is the righteous life of Christ by which he fulfilled all the commands of God required of us. Not only are all our sins erased, but a mark of righteousness is written next to our names. He is the sin bearer and the purity bestower. What does the gospel message tell us about Jesus? It tells us that Jesus is the God who saves sinners. Jesus is the God who saves sinners. And friends, he ain't a dead savior either. He was absolutely put to death in the flesh, as Peter says. But that's not the end of the story. Because three days later, he came back to life. He conquered the enemy we couldn't conquer when he defeated sin and death. His resurrection was kind of like God's stamp of approval, if you will, that Jesus had done all that was needed to save sinners. This is one of the reasons Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, don't you see, this is how the apparent tension of Exodus 34 is resolved. The guilty can be declared not guilty and have their iniquity and sin forgiven because there is one who died in their place. The penalty was paid. Forgiveness can genuinely be extended when justice is satisfied. God's wrath was exhausted upon Jesus for those who would trust in him. So that's the next question. The one that hears the gospel, the question that remains is, are you one of the forgiven? 
Are you one who has had the blessings of the life, the death, and the resurrection applied to your life? The gospel demands a response. The gospel demands a response. Let's go back to where we started, Romans 10. You see, hearing the gospel message and knowing the gospel message does not save anyone. The gospel demands a response from us. The saving work of Jesus Christ is only applied to an individual's life when one responds to him. So what is this response? Well, let's look at Romans 10. 9 through 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now what we need to know, this is not someone just uttering the words uttering the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Anyone can say these words and still go straight to hell. But rather, the confession, Jesus is Lord, you'll notice, is connected to a heart that believes. A heart that believes in the one who has been raised from the dead. See, belief, according to the Bible, is putting your faith in Jesus. You're trusting Jesus. You're relying on Jesus. You're casting yourself upon him. And a person who believes in their heart knows that only one person has the power to save them from sin, and it's the one who died on the cross for sin and rose from the grave. I love this. One person said, biblical faith or belief It is the empty hand that reaches out to Christ. It does not contribute anything that merits salvation. It only receives power. Friends, this is not just knowing facts. This is not just head knowledge. Paul says it's with the heart one believes and is justified. This is a personal reliance Not just to trust in facts, but a personal reliance upon the person. The one, the man, Jesus Christ. And genuine belief, genuine trust in the heart, we see, will show itself externally. A heart that believes is evidenced by a mouth that confesses. And that confession is specific. Paul says, Jesus is Lord. Now, we know, as we read throughout the New Testament, that a public profession isn't the only evidence of genuine belief. Rather, I think this is a specific example of the broader change that we see throughout the New Testament that the Bible calls repentance. To repent. Repentance is turning from sin to God. See, genuine belief involves an intentional act of the will. It involves turning from sin and saying to Jesus, you 
are my Lord now because there ain't no one else that's done for me what you have. You alone are my Savior. Now I follow you. Friends, there is no such thing as having Jesus as Savior but not having him as Lord. There's no such thing. He is Lord and he is Savior. And if he is genuinely your Savior, then he is your Lord. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying a repentant person is a perfect person. Because repentance is about direction, not perfection. All right? Repentance, get this in your head. Repentance is not perfection. It is about direction. A repentant person, one who genuinely believes in Jesus, will still sin. But a repentant person is no longer at peace with his sin. He is no longer at peace with his sin. Rather, we've declared war on our sin. And so when we do sin, we are quick to take it to Jesus and confess it and seek his forgiveness. We are no longer at peace with our sin. A repentant person now desires and works with the help of the Holy Spirit to put their sin to death and walk in faithful obedience to Jesus. And we do this not to pay God back, not to earn a better standing with him. We do it out of a heart of worship and thankfulness for a Savior who has already done everything that needs to be done. We work not to be made right with God. We work because we have already been made right with God. And our obedience is a response of thankfulness and worship to a Savior who has given his all so that I could walk away free. Listen to this theologian. The difference between an unconverted man and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. I'm going to read that for you one more time. The difference between an unconverted man and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Friends, the gospel demands a response, and that response that the Bible calls us to is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That is the response. And notice the result at the end of verse 9. You will be saved. You will be saved. Saved from the penalty and the power of sin. Totally forgiven. Saved from the wrath of God. Adopted into his family. Given the free gift of eternal life. 
So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, my encouragement for you this morning is just to worship. (laughs) Allow your heart to meditate on the glorious truths of the gospel and lead you to worship your Savior for what he has done. There's a line from a song that kept going around in my mind as I was studying this week. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, that's the gospel. So worship, Christian. Worship the Savior who has made it possible for you to walk away free and then go tell. And know this, we're not going to be able to share the entire gospel story every time in every conversation. And that's fine. Our job is to faithfully open our mouths when God gives us the opportunity. So just keep sowing the seeds. And maybe that's just one seed at a time. Keep sowing. Keep sowing seeds of gospel truth in your relationships. And as Pastor John said a couple weeks ago, just keep stacking that kindling while at the same time praying that God, the Holy Spirit, would light that kindling and change the heart. Now, if you're here this morning and the Spirit has opened your eyes for the first time to these truths, my exhortation to you is to repent and believe. Repent and believe in Christ alone for salvation. There is salvation in no one else. Acts 4, there is salvation in no other name given among men. There's only one name by which you must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. To reject Christ is to reject life and embrace death. That's what it means to reject Christ. And if you want to know how serious God takes your sin, look at the cross. But at the same time, if you want to know how incredible God's love and mercy is, Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Now, we have little black books back there on that table. If you just want to continue meditating on these things, learning more about the gospel, there's a little black book called there. It's called What is the Gospel? A phenomenal little book. Those are free to take. If we run out, come find somebody, we will get you one. We're going to give you a chance to respond as the band comes up here. Maybe you just want to worship right now, and that's fine, but maybe you're one that needs to repent and believe right now. You can do that where you're sitting. You can come find somebody to talk to, to ask questions, to pray with you. Let's pray. God, it's with all our hearts that we sing, what can wash away my sin? It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
what can make me whole again? It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. God, we pause to say thank you for Jesus, his willingness to lay down his life, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we could be, as Peter says, brought back to God. God, I have no doubt there's probably some sitting here that need to be brought back to you right now. So Holy Spirit, I beg you, I plead for you to do the work that only you can do. And that you would grant the gift of repentance. Grant the gift of saving faith for your honor and glory. And may we all be faithful to share this glorious message in our daily lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our friendships. God help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.